A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. You can't expect someone to love or care about their neighbors, their community, Mother Earth, strangers walking down the street if they don't love themselves first. It all starts with self-love. And we talk about that in the book like a lot because a lot of people are trying to do all this external work but they're not doing the internal work to love themselves first. And that's what's really going to make a shift. Welcome to the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, Visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg. I'm delighted today to be speaking with my good friends, Andres Gonzalez and brothers Ali and Atman Smith. Together, Andy, Ali, and Atman are the founders of the Holistic Life Foundation, a nonprofit organization bringing yoga meditation, and breathwork to thousands of at-risk kids in Baltimore schools since 2001. Their work has received wide national attention due to their remarkable results in public schools where suspension rates plummet and graduation rates skyrocket. Outside of their work with the Holistic Life Foundation, Ali, Upman, and Andy also teach to diverse populations around the world, including drug treatment centers, mental crisis facilities, homeless shelters, as well as yoga, wellness, and mindfulness festivals. Their work has been featured in NBC Nightly News, CNN, CBS, The Washington Post, Upworthy, and many more. I'm so thrilled that their appearance today on the Meta Hour is in celebration of the release of their first book, Let Your Light Shine, How Mindfulness Can Empower Children and Rebuild Communities, which makes me, I would like to hope, less of a nudge so we can get off that topic. When are you going to write a book? Coming out October 18th of 2022 from Penguin Books. So welcome, everybody. How are you all? Good. Fantastic. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Sharon. Yeah, really, Sharon. Thank you. Congratulations to you three on the book. Thank goodness. Um, so you all have the distinct honor of being the first guest group on the Meta Hour to make an illustrious third appearance. So I think Ooh. you get a or something for that. Three Pete. <laughs> That's right. To the listeners out there who are new to you and your work, I would recommend taking a listen to the previous podcast episodes here in the Met Hour with the guys to learn more about the origins of HLF and your histories. These are episode 52, released in 2017, and episode 40 from 2016. Also, I want to point listeners to the guest podcast series you're offering here on the Be Here Now Network for your book release. We'll also link to that in the show notes so you can easily find it. 
let's talk about the book. Um, I know it's been in the making for a very long time. Um, and even before we get to that, just as I was reading these notes and I said 2001, I wonder if there was a relationship between September 11th, 2001 and the origins of your work. Was there something there? Yeah, I think there definitely was. Like, it's funny. I remember um, waking up the morning that everything started happening. And the first place I went to was went to was my teacher's house uh, and sat over there and watched the news with him and talked the entire day. And uh, I remember he talked a lot about suffering in the world and how this was going to increase the anxiety and the fear and the hatred and the suffering. Like it was just going to go up astronomically from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was at a point where we were deep into our practice um, and, you know, we were, we were, we were really, um, yeah, we were like kind of in that hermitish stage. I think we were, um, we weren't living on Smallwood Street at that point. I remember, um, me and Andy were waiting for some construction to get done on the house on Smallwood Street that we moved into. Uh, and then like all these things started happening. And then I think for whatever reason, the universe worked it out that like, um, for whatever reason, like it was just like kind of like divine timing that we got put in that house right after this happened. And we started doing the work uh, to form the Holistic Life Foundation because we were deep practitioners at that time. We loved being around our teacher um, and, and learning as much as we could and put it into action in our lives. And um, it was just like, now it was time to start doing something with it. And we didn't know what that, what that was going to be, but we knew that like for the amount of like peace and inner happiness and self-love and love for humanity that we had, like we had to share these practices with people. Like we couldn't sit on them. And then like, you know I mean? I feel like that was when they were having like the, um, the terror alerts on TV. It was like, had the different colors and people were just like, they were imposing the things. Like it was, it became a lot more stressful to fly on an airplane. So I think it was just, people were just angry and anxious and, and, and all these things were going on, changing the vibration of the way people felt. And we wanted to give a people to, to way to go inward uh, and change their vibration of themselves and the world around them. Yeah, it just really, you know, time goes on and, and, you know, life moves on and all kinds of things happen. But as soon as I said 2001, I thought, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, I remember that year because I was living in New York and it was, you know, very uh, telling. And um, so here we are, you know, all these years later. And uh, this book is about to be born, which is all so connected to, you know, you're having that teacher who's so so much a blessing in your life and that was a family thing and you're meeting um, Andy when you went to college and, and uh, all the work that you've done with so many different types of groups and um, I think it's a remarkable process and one of the things I've been so encouraging about uh, because of my own experience in writing was that it's so weird, you know, it's like when you gather in a room full of people, people have strong intention you know, even before the pandemic, they had to travel to get there or they had money to get there to afford it or, you know, and they had to, they had to really want to be there. And, and it was the expression of their own years of whatever growth and turmoil they'd been through. And um, But they had to really want to be there. But encountering a book can be almost sort of more magical and, and smaller, but more impactful in a way. Like I, I met one woman We'd met at a conference uh, before my first book came out. We met at this conference, and then we totally lost touch, even though we had a lot of things in common. And then I heard from her years later, and she said, I was in a bookstore, and your book fell on my head. 
I said, really? <laughs> my book just like fell in your head? He said, yeah, it fell in my head. So then we became good friends. Or people, somebody said to my colleague, Joseph Colsey, once, I was working on a ship and uh, I found your book in the trash. And he said, I picked it up, it changed my life. And um, there's something about being outside of the need to be in the physical space together and having such deep work expressed that I think is just great. So how did the book take shape and how was the writing process for you? I mean, honestly, uh, the book took shape. Um, there's this conference that uh, we always go to, uh, Wisdom 2.0. Um, Soren does a great job. Um bringing people in the contemplative realm and, um, you know, people in the um, technology realm together uh, in San Francisco. And we would go to this um, this bar called the Pickwick uh, after um, all of the events of the day uh, of Wisdom 2.0 uh, with the um, editors and owners of uh, Mindful Magazine, uh, James Gibbon and uh, Barry Boyce. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one day, uh, you know, Barry uh, came up to us and was like, look, you guys have an awesome story. You all need to let people know about it. Uh, You all will motivate people hearing about where you came from, how it started and the impact that you all are having. Let's make a pickwick resolution right now. I'm going to write a book with you all. Mm. And, you know, that was maybe over a decade ago. And, you know, we... um, you know, sat down with him and we would always, uh, every time there would be a Wisdom 2.0, we would always go back to the Pickwick and, you know, talk about, you know, getting this book um, started and, you know, how it would help us. It would help, uh, you know, us as an organization increasing our scope and vision, uh, but then it would also help uh, other folks that are into social justice and, you know, into being the change they want to see in the world and letting them see, you know, what worked for us, what uh, didn't work for us, what did we learn in the process. Um, and, you know, that that's where it really got started. And, um, you know, 10 years later, uh, we have um, almost completed our journey. And, you know, the book will be coming out uh, in October. Um, but, yeah, it, it started, you know, uh, at Wisdom 2.0, us uh, meeting with, you know, two of our big bros and, you know, them just letting us know how important it is to, you know, get our story out there, you know, to inspire folks. Yeah. And I think at one point um, we even bought Barry. I mean, like this definitely like the the book wouldn't be a thing without Barry Boyce. Like uh, he's like our big brother, uh, mentor, friend. And this it wouldn't have it wouldn't have manifested without him, like from the beginning, pushing us to do it. Um, and then we actually, he actually came to Baltimore. We got an Airbnb and we stayed there for five days. Like we had like a flow chart of the HLF timeline written out on the wall. We had all these ideas about chapters and practices, of influential people. Um, we drove around and actually did like a driving tour of the entire city to see important places that were involved in the story. Um, and then we got all these notes to actually, we didn't even write anything down for other than the stuff on the wall. Um, we actually, um, he recorded all the conversations then started to get them on paper um, and then like, like life stuff just happened. And, um, he, it, it turned out that he wasn't going to have the time to actually, um, finish the process with us and help us put it together. Uh, so he just kind of, you know, he recommended some people, he recommended an agent, he recommended a team and, and it was like, 
it all came together perfectly, but it definitely wouldn't be a, like there would be no book without Barry Boyce. So we definitely appreciate love him a lot for that. Yeah. I remember how cool it was that week in particular, because, you know, oftentimes when you're doing this type of work, you're just doing it. And you know, our teacher used to always say, just do the work and, and leave the results to the universe. And, you know, when you're in the trenches and you're, you're, you're grinding and you're teaching the classes or you're doing the speaking engagements or you're answering the emails, you're taking care of the administrative stuff, you know, sometimes you forget all that has transpired. And I thought it was really cool going through that and, and you know, reflecting on some of those first classes that we did, the first time we stepped out of schools and started going into adult programming, the first time, you know, we were in this neighborhood or that neighborhood. And it was, I don't know, it's really just awesome to see how long it's been and, and where we started from and where we came from and where we're at now. And it's, I don't know, it's exciting to finally be able to, put it down on paper so people could see our journey and, and hopefully benefit from all that we've gone through. It's really fantastic. And conveniently enough, the book has three parts. So here we are. Um, uh, it has your story and the spiritual path and then the inner practices to uncover one's own light. And then the third part, which is bringing your light into the world. You know, the uh, your story and the spiritual path is a, phenomenal story and and of course it's also within the context of you know this is uh, 2022 that we are recording this Andy you're Puerto Rican and Andy you're black um, this feels relevant to include in the conversation because there's been such an unveiling of racism in our country these past years and as black and brown skinned men particularly is something you've faced throughout your lives and um, you know it, it's sort of a, it's the universal story. Every single one of us can understand. I think um, what it's like to have parents who made them feel weird, but in your case, because they were vegetarians, and you know what it's <laughs> like to have um, somebody who acts like they see you and they don't see you at all, and you know so many things like that. But you do it in a certain context because that's your background. And um, so here we are talking about love and the power of love and. Uh, you know, as your teacher said, love is the strongest force in the universe. And what does that mean when your neighborhood is facing the kinds of things in terms of violence and racism and poverty and crime that your neighborhood actually does face? And um, I remember once you're telling a story and we were teaching together, and uh, I think, uh, mine this was you, and you were saying how uh, somebody was visiting, like a visiting teacher, and they said they were caught out loud and some assumption like everybody has running water, of course, you know, and and some little kid in the class said, well, I don't have any water, you know. Uh, there's so much you have been through. And I don't know if you, how you want to divide up these three topics amongst the three of you. But uh, if you want to start with your story and uh, the spiritual path, that would be great. I think one thing I really love about, about the book um, is that I think it gives some context to our story. Mm -hmm. Um Atman, Andy, and I are um, like we love the yogic practice, and I think the, the way that we teach um, and the things that we teach are different than a, than a lot of the other people that we're around. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because of the influences we had and the way that they grew up. Like, there's a lot of stories about uh, me and Atman's mom, our dad, and our teacher, Uncle Will, mm -hmm. in there uh, because I think the way that they lived their lives and the people that they strive to be had a huge influence on us and the way that we saw the world and the way that we wanted to teach in the world, um, they were all about change 
and upliftment and empowerment. And I think that goes into the way that we teach. I think they were all about like um, building family and building community. And that goes into the way that we teach. Mm -hmm. Um, They were all about um, being fierce in the world, but also tapping into your heart and having the softness to to love yourself and love the people around you. Um, I think race and institutional racism played a huge part in their lives. Like I remember our dad would always tell us stories about like how like he would have to go get his, like he couldn't go try on his clothes when he was going school shopping. Like he had to go to the back of the store and get clothes and get food from back there and then go home and try them on and then go back to the store and, and take it back if they didn't fit. Like he couldn't. So there were like, I think he never let us forget what he went through growing up and like the struggle that, that they went through for, for everyone. I mean, cause they were heavily involved in like, in, in, in every way, shape and form of civil rights, but whether it was like, um, and, and both, and, and all sides of the spectrum, like from, from, I don't know, like nonviolence resistance to the Panthers. So it was just like, they were looking to make a change. And I think, the, it, it came to them that like they were, I mean, they would always talk to us like about how revolutions didn't work. You know what I mean? Like it, they were always ended up violent and things would happen. And like um, evolution took too long. Like the only way to really change the world was an evolution. Like you had to change yourself and like tap into that universal omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent part of yourself and then let it shine out into the world. And then that's how people could change the world. It's like people were more concerned about changing their their inner self and tapping into their true self. Like that's how the world would shift. So I think, and, and that was, that's, that's how we taught. That's how we, that's how we went out into the world. Like we weren't like a, a lot of people, I don't think we would be into yoga if we wouldn't have learned it from, like if we wouldn't have been introduced to it from our dad uh, as me, in the form of meditation as a kid, the guy that ran our church at Chariot Peter, and then Uncle Will taking us like right deep, deep, deep down the rabbit hole. Um, I don't know if we'd be into it. I don't think we could have gone to a yoga studio and gotten, a connection to the practice in a way that we do in a way that really spoke to us like deep down in our soul. I don't, I don't think that would have happened without, without them and like our mom's support and love and like demanding certain things from us and like making us achieve at a certain level and making us not settle for things. I think all those things went into like the, the way that we, the, the way that we are in the world. So I'm, I'm glad that our story's in there, but I'm glad the the foundation for that story is in there too. Cause They've got some powerful stories and there's some people that that mean a lot to us and, and, and made us who we are today. You know, something to add on to that is, you know, our uh, dad, mom and Uncle Will had, you know, everything to do with, you know, what we were teaching as far as like the yoga, the love. You know, something else that's important is, you know, our dad stressing to us about being entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, one thing he used to always tell us is that, you know, they always tell you to get an education, go get a job, get married, and have children, retire, and die. But, you know, that whole, uh, you know, American dream wasn't really a reality. You know, he saw a lot of his friends and his uh, father, you know, uh, benefits get cut. And, you know, they weren't able to sustain their financial independence uh, after they retired. And, you know, they would sometimes, um, you know, get fired from their jobs. And that's why he would always say, man, I want you all to be the check and not earn the check. And, you know, we didn't know what that was going to look like uh, when we first graduated from college. Mm-hmm. But we bought, uh, you know, Andy in with, you know, Andy, you know, when we met Andy, you know, it was in University of Maryland College Park. Uh, we were all going to a uh, meditation class 
And I'm just joking. We didn't meet at a meditation class. We met at the bars. Um, but while we were at the bars, we, uh, you know, it went from, you know, us partying to us uh, kind of, you know, reflecting on, you know, like, why are we here? What's the purpose of life? You know, what can we do to, you know, help ease the suffering? And, you know, a lot of people looked at us crazy because, you know, us hanging out went from partying to maybe like a social action um, group. And, you know, we knew that we wanted to do something to be the change that we wanted to see in the world, but we had no idea what it was. But, you know, when my dad, you know, came to us and said that he'd support us in, you know, our venture, uh, you know, uh, we told him about Andy and, you know, Andy was, you know, a, a genuine dude who was selfless and, you know, into all of the same things that we were into, you know, uh, you know, just, you know, love and into yoga. And, you know, we decided to try to figure out what we can do to, you know, help ease the suffering while also being entrepreneurs. And, you know, eventually that's when um, the Holistic Life Foundation uh, came to fruition. Um, You know, we got into the practice uh, maybe 25 years ago, and we kind of saw what it was doing for us, strengthening us mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And, you know, when we were into the practice, we were living in one of the most violent neighborhoods uh, in all of America, North and Pulaski and West Baltimore, a lot of open air drug drug markets, um, you know, dilapidated housing, murders, you know, every weekend, um, you know, a lot of hopelessness. And, you know, a lot of people were trying to figure out, you know, how we were blissing out in a community with so much suffering. And we had to attest it to our practice. And, you know, when, you know, we kind of analyzed it, we're like, man, we, if we're able to bliss out here, we need to teach people the techniques that uh, are allowing us to be in a state of bliss while being in chaos. And that is what kind of led us to take that approach to being entrepreneurs is, you know, seeing what the practice did for us wanting to be the check and not wanting to earn the check and, you know, taking that route uh, to be entrepreneurs by trying to help alleviate the suffering that we saw first off in our neighborhood. And then, you know, it worked so well in one of the most uh, underserved, um, highly traumatized area areas in the world. So we just took that um, blueprint and, you know, took it all over the state, then all over the nation, then all over the world. Yeah, you know, one thing I wanted to add to that about that first part was that really, I mean, it's like something I really like about it. I mean, I think it's so important to get that foundation that came from Ali's and Atma's father and mother and Uncle Will and these people that supported us and, and were there for us and were like, they believed in us because, you know, so often it could have been so easy for us to just give up because we would just be like, we're not doing anything, you know? And, you know, those first few years, you didn't really see much of an impact. It's not like we were getting paid to do any of the work. It was, it was a struggle. And, you know, your peers and your friends are constantly judging you and like, what are you doing? Get a real job, all this type of stuff. But and I think it's so important to discuss where they came from and, and what they had to go through because of how relevant it is to today. Because I think so often, you know, we're, we, we, we're big love guys, right? So when you read the first part of the book, you're, you may be taken aback a little because we just kept it really real. And that's what I really like about that is that, you know, we brought to light 
the truths and the atrocities that have gone on in the past and that are continuously going on today. And, you know, the, the reality of what really is, you know, so often I feel like these atrocities are concealed or like they're pushed under the carpet and, you know, people are like, oh, it's getting better or it's not that bad. And, and it is, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that it's really key that, that we, we brought to light all these injustices that have been going on throughout history and that are still going on today. Uh, because I think it needs to be, you know, brought to the forefront and, and really, you know, brought to people's attention so that we can make a difference. And I think the only way that we can make a difference is what part two starts talking about is working on yourself, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's how we kind of, I thought it was a really smooth flow of, of bringing on the history of the people that supported us and the things they had to go through and how kids and the adults in the world are still going through these things. And we are too, you know, being minorities in, in, in the world and, and how, you know, people can always say, Hey, there are these problems, but it was interesting that we were able to be like, Hey, you know, okay, there's these problems, but now here are maybe some things you can do as a solution. I think oftentimes people don't do that. It was very hard. You know, we've been taught um, so many things, you know, on so many levels, personal, familial, immediate cultural, and sort of more generalized cultural. And and it's so easy to believe uh, some of those real myths and distortions about what it means to be whole, you know, what it means to be a man or a woman or these days, you know, it's a little more complex than that. And, um, you know, what it means to be happy, to be strong. You know, if I think about the number of times my own conditioning would be not in the direction of love is the answer, you know, like if you want to be strong, think about vengefulness, you know, think about it for the rest of your life. Think about it obsessively. Think about it nonstop. And there's much more in that nature of things. Uh, But what happens when we have a chance to stop or we take the chance to stop and we pull away a little bit so we can look more accurately and more truthfully and what our experience is, sometimes you see things you've been holding on to the most as the answers are really not the answers, you know. It caused more of a problem than you would have imagined. And so, but that's up to us to see. And it's very self empowering to understand that no one's forcing anything on us. And it's something that we can see. So, if you want to talk a little bit about the inner practices to uncover one's own light, which is really the heart of any endeavor like this kind of book, because it's not about just like for you, it wasn't about your Uncle Will, you know, it's not about you guys. It's about every person who undertakes these practices. One thing I love about this book is that um, when uh, we, we got to go deep with the practices that we talked about, um, when we're teaching, like, all the time through the Holistic Life Foundation, um, we're, we're doing great, but we're... We've been talking about this a lot. Like we're, we're mostly teaching awareness practices, people to be aware of their breath, aware of their thoughts, aware of their body. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of the things that that we do in our personal practice, we can't teach through the Holistic Life Foundation. And it's, and it's some of the things that have changed us and changed the people that, that we know personally, that we've taught, like made huge changes in their life. And um, I think being able to just kind of freely talk about our practice and the different things that go into it and how most of... I'd say maybe 90% of, of, of the person, the practices that I do have nothing to do with a yoga mat or me sitting down meditating. And we were able to share a lot of that stuff because of how much of an impact it has. I mean, there's, there's huge amounts of suffering going on all over this planet. 
and um, people don't have an outlet to like uplift themselves and uplift their consciousness. They might not be able to do anything about their physical surroundings, but you know what I mean? There, there's a lot to be said for being able to find some sense of inner peace in, out, in all that outer turmoil and like being able to connect to something bigger and, and more powerful than yourself. Like that, that real source of like, you know what I mean? Like when, when you tap into your true self, like it's full of love, it's full of power, it's full of connection like the perceived separateness and, and like a lot of people feel alone in the world um, because they're just living physically. You know what I mean? I feel like when you, when you start to go inward, like you, you feel that deep connection to your true self in the universe and some of that like physical aloneness that you might feel or isolation that you might feel uh, starts to drift away a little bit. So I think it's good to be able to like, we practice mantras a lot. We practice mudras a lot. We practice a lot of the non like the the non mat based yogic practices a lot, and I think being able to get this stuff out there, um, it's going to be able to help people with the, with their suffering. I feel like we, we always felt that teaching with the whole holistic life foundation and teaching in schools was like us teaching with our hands tied, because uh, again, a lot of things that that we hold near and dear to our heart in our practice, we can't we can't share. Like there's no outlet to do that. We we don't want to scare anyone off, and there's certain things we can and can't teach in schools, but I think. This book gives us a chance and an opportunity to get these practices out there and start teaching with people outside of schools. You know what I mean? But um, just deep, really, really deep spiritual practices that can help people to start alleviate some of the suffering that, that, that they're dealing with, that everybody deals with. Can you give me one example of something that you hadn't been able to teach so often, perhaps? Um, yeah. So mantra yoga um, is was one of our teachers favorite forms of yoga. He was a. Uh, um, like if he could do it all over again, he couldn't be um, a, a yogi. He'd be a jazz singer. Um, <laughs> that, that's what he would do because he would and he would sing mantras all the time. Like he'd be constantly like we'd be sitting at his house, hanging out. He'd be, he'd be talking um, about spirituality and love and the universe and our omniscience. And, and like and and all of a sudden he'd break out his damaru, he'd start drumming, and he starts singing some mantras. And we it would turn into a mantra jam session all the time. And he was always talking about like like all three of us are terrible singers, um, but he would always talk about you got to funk up the mantra. But that was easy for him because he had a really nice voice. Like his voice, his voice was like he could have been a professional jazz singer, but that wasn't the path for him. So I think I think the mantras are a huge thing, and there's some 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 just three or four in there that are really near and dear to our heart. Uh, two of the first ones our teacher gave us. And then one for like, I mean, everybody's got stuff going on in their mind all the time. Um, I, I usually equate it to like like the Tom and Jerry cartoon where you got the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other one, like trying to, and it's just like that back and forth of like, hey, you should do this because this is the right thing to do. And the other one's like, nah, man, like send them all that negative energy. Like they shouldn't have done this. So it's like the back and forth. And then there's the, like, there's this mantra um, that he taught us. It's Chandra Yahinama. He taught us this mantra. And it's to purify the mind. So when you're in those moments, you can kind of like wipe the slate clean and just be more in the present moment. Your mind's not going back and forth. Um, and any thoughts that are on your mind that you want to kind of sweep out, like it's a perfect thing to kind of clear your mind out and put you in the present moment. But those mantras can be done anywhere, anytime. They can be done while you're meditating. They can be done while you're listening to music. They can be done while you're driving. I do my mantra yoga practice while I walk my dog. So it's like that's one of the one of the many practices that that, that we love that we practice that we haven't really had an opportunity to get out there yet. Yeah, and uh, first and foremost, I want to clarify what Ali said. Him and Andy's voice is um, horrible. 
but my voice is angelic. Uh, so, you know, I had to clarify that. Real quick. Sing something real quick for us, Ahmed. Uh, you can uh, catch me on my new LP that's coming out. Uh, it's coinciding with the... No, I'm just joking. I, have, I My voice is not anywhere either. Um, but um, just building off of what Ali was saying as far as uh, the mantras, um, I know one thing he used to always say is, you know, their formulas. Um, Ali's son, you know, we're big into video games. Uh, you know, he would... You know, Ali would teach uh, mantras to his son and his son was like, oh my gosh, they're like cheat codes in life. You know, they'll... <laughs> you know, allow you to materialize whatever you want uh, in your life, uh, whether it's a feeling, uh, whether it's, you know, removing obstacles. Um, And, you know, like Ali was saying, like, whenever I walk my dog in the morning and the evening time, you know, each block I do a different mantra. Um, And, you know, one of my favorite mantras uh, is one for all the suffering souls in the universe. And, you know, it's, a really long one. Um, but, you know, just because like, if you really think about that, like if you're putting out that energy for all suffering souls in the universe, you know, it's one of the ones that, you know, I've really spent my time to try to learn just because, you know, that is, that's like the sun, um, you know, the sun rises and, you know, every single day to bring life to everyone and everything. And, you know, to me, that mantra is kind of like that as well, because, you know, everybody may not understand or may not, um, maybe suffering in the world, um, you know, but it's really one of those things that everybody is deserving of, you know, that loving energy, uh, even if they are uh, struggling in life. And, you know, with that mantra, uh, it definitely sends out that loving energy to all suffering souls in the universe. And, you know, in these days and times, uh, that number is, you know, through the roof as far as, uh, you know, those people suffering. And, you know, um, it makes me, it, it, it generates a certain energy within me when I am putting that energy out into the world. Uh, and, you know, like uh, the beauty is understanding the law of karma and, you know, whatever you put out there comes back tenfold. So, you know, imagine, you know, understanding the science of, you know, whatever you're putting out comes back tenfold, putting out love to all the suffering souls in the universe not saying that you're looking for anything in return, but, you know, you, you know, you're giving the results to the universe of that mantra. But just, you know, if you understand, if you're putting out that energy, that same energy is coming back tenfold. So, you know, that is a, a beautiful concept to have. It's, you know, like that, uh, like, you know, loving kindness practice, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, you loving, loving, you know, the uh, people that you love, you're loving people that, you know, get under your skin, you're loving people that you're indifferent to. It's just like that putting out that love and being that love. And, you know, to me, uh, you know, that is one of the, um, my favorite mantras, uh, just because, you know, you are projecting love to the people that need it the most. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about how, well, first, at first I thought it's so funny when, when Ali was first answering the question, it was before, uh, Sharon said the, follow-up question. I, I pictured our teacher in this conversation we had where he's looking at me and he's like, man, you got to do the formulas. You got to show him the formulas. And I'm like, uncle, well, we can't, we're not allowed to do that in schools. And he's like looking at me with like this bewildered face, like, what do you mean? And I'm like, we're just not allowed to teach that. Time. I'm like, we don't even do ohm in the schools. And he's like, what? And you know, he's just like so shocked and he's so confused. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think all of us know how important 
that type of stuff was to our spiritual growth, mm-hmm. you know, whether it was mantras, whether it was the mudras, whether it was chakras, whether it was talking about our energy bodies, our dreams, reincarnation, you know, like all these things that we discussed with each other that made us want to go deeper and want to, you know, go more inward and, and delve into our reading and our studies more. And, you know, I, I think that all of us see it when we're going into schools and we're doing the work with HLF, how we're, we're still making a fantastic impact, but it's not what it could be. Because I know for sure if I didn't have all those other aspects introduced to me, that there's no way I would be who I am today or where I am today. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes we're having those conversations with the kids and you're talking with them and I want to get deeper and talk more philosophical and talk about the pickle, Sharon, you know, that type of stuff. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's, you, you can't, you know, sometimes, and, and it's great that in the second part, we are finally able to have that voice to be able to speak to these practices and, and try to provide the readers with as many tools as possible. Cause you know, ultimately that's what uncle, we used to always say to us, we just going to give them as many tools as we can to help them help themselves. That we're not teachers, we're reminders, that we're conduits, and we're just passing on this knowledge and the truth to everybody. And I think that's really what part two was doing. I think it's fantastic because it is, it is like, um, it is a great equalizer. And it's sort of the whole purpose, you know, like uh, I had one teacher, I may have quoted him to you before, um, a man named Indra. When I was in India, I, you know, I went when I was 18. I left when I was 21. Um, and which was not my intention. My intention was to, to a school semester, there was school year there, actually. I had a full year. Um, but, you know, at one point, Manindra said to me, um, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem, now you solve yours. And on the one hand, it seemed a little cutting, but on the other hand, like, I heard that as, you can do this. You actually have the ability to do this. Like, you know, you came all the way to India to try to figure something out, and learn some tools, and you can do that. You can do it. And I thought, wow, I wonder if anyone has ever really looked at me before. I said, so you can do this. You know, and that's what the methods really do, is like they're saying, here, it's yours, you know, like, bring it to life, you do it. And I love the um, kind of the evolution of mantra, which is also such a vast category because it's, you know, very ancient, sort of almost ritualistic mantras and ceremonial mantras and and there's um, mantras where we understand the words, and there are mantras that are just sound. And uh, the ones where we understand the words, I especially like, I think, in a way, because over time we tend to evolve our own reminders and the things that don't take long. It's not like giving yourself a lecture. It doesn't take long to kind of get your head straight. Like, all oh, right, that's what I care about. Um, you know, one of my own favorite mantras is uh, – out of the time that I was, I was really sick and I was in the hospital and, and I kept kind of catastrophizing, well, this can only mean, you know, like the worst. And, uh, and I finally said to myself, why are you rehearsing that? You know, like, why are you so convinced it's going to be that direction that way? And like, stop rehearsing that. You're just putting that out again and again and again and again. And that was kind of fun to come up with my own mantra. Um, and I think we do tend to do that. My friend, Sylvia, who's, uh, one of my colleagues who will describe herself as a far worse catastrophizer than I. Um, she said, you know, she's 85, I think now, or 86. And so her children, who she had very young, um, 
uh, or you know, quite adult. And she said, I'll call one of my children, one of my adult children. Let me hasten to repeat. I'll call one of my adult children and they don't answer the phone. And it never occurs to me they might be taking a shower. You know, maybe they fell in love. They don't feel like talking to their mother. It's like the worst does happen. Uh, and so she said, I have a new mantra. She said to me not too long ago. And I said, oh, what is it? And she said, not every bus is going to end up in a ditch. And I thought, that's pretty triumphant, you know, to, to kind of go there. So just before we go on to the next category, wondering if there's any uh, kind of new evolution of mantras that you're playing with yourselves. No, not really. Um, like most of the mantras that we learned were um, were uh, were older ones. You know what I mean? Like I, I think we just like the, we like the vibration of the ones that we have. Our teacher taught us a lot, mm-hmm. and, um, and the way that um, the way that he taught us mantras, it was more um, more from a, a yogic standpoint. You know what I mean? Like um, he would always talk to us about the difference between um, like mantras and affirmations. Like, and you always talk about the importance of affirmations and like filling your mind and your energy and like your field with all these like positive thoughts because your mm-hmm. thoughts make mm-hmm. reality. But um, he was more like a, he was very, he was, I would say he was a traditionalist when it came to mantras. Like, mm-hmm. like, yeah, he was like you know what I mean? Where he, he was more along the line of the, in, in yogic um, spirituality where people go into um, like those deep meditative states and they come out with mantras to share mm-hmm. with the world like like really really great yogis and uh that's the way that he felt about about the practice like he said I, he was always telling us like affirmations had their place and they were they were awesome to use like i have affirmations that are written up on my whiteboard that i'll do in the morning but you know he was saying mantras are divine vibrations of words or sounds that lead mm-hmm. to upliftment you know what i mean and, and they and they come from they come from deep within and they're shared with the world and that's the beautiful thing about having a teacher of course is that there's there's the this connection to the immediate manifestation in your life and what it looks like today, because they know about that. And there's a connection to centuries of practice that people have put into using these, these very tools, you know, which is really kind of incredible to hold every direction and every, and every moment. Um, so let's talk about bringing your light into the world. Cause I think your teacher had a very interesting, uh, aspect to, to what he, I don't know if he prefers the right word or insisted on, like that you teach teachers, that you you really emphasize that aspect of things for everybody that you were teaching. So I wonder if someone could address that. Yeah, I can uh, dive in first. Uh, you know, one thing when we first came to him all these years ago, uh, a couple decades ago now, um, you know, and Express the fact that we wanted to learn, um, you know, yoga and, you know, go, learning, going into the light. He was like, that's cool. You know, I only have, um, you know, two requests. One, uh, you know, this is, you know, after we hung out at his house watching basketball, drinking a couple of beers, um, you know, and he was like, well, y'all have to show up at my house at 430 in the morning. Uh, the next morning we were like, man, he is really trying to set us up for failure. Us hanging out all night and you know, putting toxins in our body. I don't know if we can do that. Um, but then the second thing that he said was, you know, we had to agree uh, to be teachers. Uh, and, you know, his whole idea was, you know, he, he would always say, I don't want no devotees. I want to create teachers. Uh, you know, I don't want anyone to be dependent on me. I want that uh, guru to not be some something that's on the outside of you, but everyone to have their own inner guru 
And that's how you really true, truly make that change or that involution. Um, so, you know, in his mind, uh, you know, that is, you know, what it's about is, you know, creating teachers and cutting on your light and, you know, first impacting yourself and then taking that light into the world and impacting anyone and everything that you're around. Um, and, you know, that's one thing that the reason why we have the whole reciprocal teaching model with the Holistic Life Foundation, um, you know, when, you know, we were first starting, uh, you know, it was just three gentlemen uh, that felt really strongly about trying to make that change in the world. And, you know, at our height, uh, when it was just us three teaching, we were only impacting maybe 30 to 40 kids, uh, you know, a day. Mm-mm. But, you know, once we took his, um, you know, his methodology and, you know, started creating teachers and doing that reciprocal teaching model, uh, you know, we not, own, not we, we didn't have those students dependent on us. They became their own teachers. And, you know, they not only, you know, were able to like lead the practices while we were in um, our after school program, but they took those practices home and back to their parents who were struggling. They took them back to their friends, their brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. and their community as a whole. And, you know, that ripple just grew exponentially or reverberated, you know, throughout the whole community. Um, and, you know, that's where, you know, the true change and, you know, the true involution happens is, you know, creating teachers and, you know, make, making that uh, real change. And I'm so curious, like, do you actually, in the book, you know, talk about the power of love because it's implicit in everything you're saying? Like, you're looking at this kid thinking, you can do this. I think you can do this, you know, and you're addressing them as a as a person like that. And, um, you know, here are methods that are uh, really uh, ennobled in a way by the centuries in which people have used them and and the sincerity with which you possibly can use them too. And, um, you know, in a way it's all about love, but in a way you can't ever really say that. First of all, you can't, then you can't write a book about love. So uh, what do you say about love in, in these chapters? I think, I think love is intertwined in, uh, you know, everything that we do, uh, even in our book. You know, um, a form of yoga that our teacher used to always talk about uh, was uh, bhakti yoga. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the elements of uh, bhakti yoga is the concept of, you know, respect or mm-hmm. to look again. Like, you know, respect is to look, re is again. And his concept with that is like when you see somebody's physical appearance, you, you know, that's all you see at first is you see their physical appearance. But if you look again, you can see that light inside of that physical appearance, which is their true capital S self which is the same universal self that's inside of you, that's inside of the tree, that's inside of, you know, every, any and everything on this planet. Um, And, you know, why would you not try to uplift any and everybody that is that light if you look deep enough? And, you know, I think that's one thing and one reason why we do the work that we do is just that concept of understanding uh, that uh, aspect of uh, bhakti yoga and, you know, looking again and seeing that light in everyone and everything and, you know, trying to bring in that, you know, harmony um, in every body that we come across. And, that, you know, that's why we teach these techniques uh, to be able to help them, you know, 
uh, achieve that inner peace, even if their outward uh, environment is chaotic, just because we do have love for them. And, you know, we found it, we've um, experienced it, and, you know, we just want to share it with anybody and everyone. And, you know, that's what we've been doing. Yeah, I think I think one thing with love with us and um and in the book and in our practices, it all starts with self love. Like mm-hmm. you can't you can't expect someone to love or care about um their neighbors, their community, Mother Earth, um strangers walking down the street if they don't love themselves first. So it all starts with self love, and, and and we talk about that in the book like a lot because a lot of people are trying to do all this external work, but they're not doing the internal work to love themselves first, and that's what's really going to make a shift. I remember Uncle Will would always say, um, you can't see the light in someone else before you see the light in yourself. And it's something you have to experience. It's not something that anyone can tell you about. Like if you've if you've really taken the time to go inward deeply and like some of the the meditation practices that Uncle Will taught us, like I can't explain what what I feel in there. I don't I don't think the human mind can really grasp it. I think it's something you have to experience. And um once you experience like the depth of it is is infinite. But it's something you you can you can kind of like you can come from a place of experience or a place of philosophy. And I think you always want us to come from a place of experience. And, um, you know, like once you tap into that light within you, like it's on, it's going to shine. I remember he would always say, like, um, people are ignorant of the light and not that they were stupid, but people would ignore it. Like there's so many things around you in the physical world to distract you. Um, some good, some bad, but there's they're still all distractions. But like. And you're ignoring your your inner life, the tr- the true place of beauty and love, and power and abundance. It's it's in there and it's shining in there. But like we get distracted by the outside world. So I think taking the time to really sit and go in and go deeper and go deeper and feel it and experience it, like that's where that's where letting your light shine out in the world starts. That's where love starts. Like loving the world starts. You you got to start with yourself. And I think we do a lot to give people practices and reminders in the book and and in our teaching to like, Hey, stop, like you, you do, do the good work, but you got to do the good work on yourself first. You got to let, you got to experience your light. You got to, you got to touch it. You got to feel it. You got to see what it's about before you can see it or feel it in anyone else or anything else. So it's like that self-love, that self-work, and then you can let your light shine out into the world. Yeah. Love doesn't have to look the same way every single time. Like there are going to be, there are going to be people in your life that you can love at a spiritual level because that's what that's what they deserve. You know what I mean? Like, but you don't have to have them in your physical space taking advantage of you or getting over on you or making you feel a certain type of way. Like loving people at a distance is a beautiful thing sometimes. Like some people don't deserve your space and your energy. Um, they're just kind of like draining it from you and they're just and they're just getting over. So like there are times where you're gonna have to just like remove them from your physical space. But that doesn't mean you, that doesn't mean that you take the time to send negative energy that way. Like like Atman was talking about with that bhakti yoga practice. Like whenever they pop in your mind, you might get an angry thought about them because of something they did, something they said, something they did to someone that you love. But that's not an opportunity to send them negativity. That's an opportunity to, to use the practice. Like, you know, they pop in your mind, your mind starts to go send them negative energy, and you like stop and you and you you go to their light. I mean that because that's what they truly are. And all that negative energy that you're sending to them, like on a spiritual level, you're sending it to yourself because, like, we're all connected. We're all that light. So, like, you know, and uh, and also that's usually a good opportunity to learn because, uh, you know, sometimes people sometimes people are just jerks. Like, there are a lot of jerks in the world. There are a lot of people who just don't have your best interest or anyone else's best interest at heart. 
But then there's also those times where it's, it could be a learning opportunity for you to see something that may be reflecting from them that you're that you don't like about yourself. So I think it, it takes I think that's one beautiful thing about the practice is the introspection is like, you know, like take the time to not just be mad at that person for something. Like, is it really just that? Or is it that they're reflecting something that you don't like about yourself? So I mean, it's I think it's I think it's a beautiful thing. Um, just love and, and looking at yourself and looking at the world. But I mean, it takes it takes some work and it's not easy. Like it's easier to just be mad at someone. Like that's that that's the easy way out. It's easy to it's easy to fight someone. It's easy to hurt someone. It's easy to hate. Like those are the easy things to do. Like love at a real spiritual level, like is tough. Like our, like our, like our teacher would always say, bhakti yoga is the hardest and the easiest form of yoga to practice. But but it's it's one of the highest forms. Well, I think, and you know, that's that's in a way that's the other side. It's like the difficulty of a book, just like the difficulty of being in a room with somebody. Is that, um, you know, there's so many varieties of application, and depending on what you've seen and lived through as a child, perhaps, and, and all kinds of different influences, and and we hear it one way, and sometimes it's a very unfair way to ourselves, like you know, to cultivate a a more loving heart, it would mean I have to spend, you know, 15 hours a week with this person or even see them again, you know, and it doesn't, it really doesn't. And, and to go into the nuance of it and, and have uh, the freedom of that and to realize that this is, this is a path. It's a path of discovery. And, and there are things that we have to work out in a particular circumstance that don't mean we're bad. You know, it doesn't mean we're doing it wrong. It, it means that for now, this is what it looks like in this particular circumstance. And, and we're going to get behind that, which is great. So trauma is a very big topic. It's a word that is really interesting to me because I, I also like watching the evolution of language. And, uh, you know, when I was a child, we never used the word trauma. I mean, who even know what that was, or let alone stress. But um, it's a big topic, and it's an important one. And so many of the kids, back to the Holistic Life Foundation and the school programs, so many of your kids are dealing with very major trauma at a very young age. And uh, Andres, starting with you, I wonder if you can speak to how your understanding of trauma has evolved and how you approach it and how does that impact what and how you teach? Yeah, I mean, I remember when we first started doing this, I don't think we were thinking about that at all. I got to be honest. Like, it, it wasn't in my mind at all that, oh, okay, like I knew kids were going through a lot of stuff. Um I knew that, you know, their lives at home weren't that great. I knew the situation in their neighborhood wasn't that great. So I knew that they were going through stuff and they weren't being given all the opportunities that other kids were. But I still, I don't think I had realized the impact that trauma had made on them. I think as we started getting more into our practices and studying more and learning more about neuroscience and the neurogenesis, neuroplasticity and all the stuff that's going on with the brain and how trauma affects the brain. That didn't come until later on. And, and that was more like an eye-opening, wow, like, wow, like what, what we're doing is really helping this. And I think we were doing it as we started progressing more and more. Like it's just started happening naturally with the way we were teaching. And, and I think, you know, that the fact that we do use love so much in our practices that that was really being a healing factor in a lot of the work we were doing. I remember so many times people saying to us, like, do you think it's even the yoga or the mindfulness? Or do you think it's just the three of y'all that's helping the kids? Mm -hmm. Because we brought 
so much love into the room, you know, and, and, and cause we cared so much about the kids and the adults that we were working with. But it, I definitely think it's evolved drastically in terms of, you know, us making sure that we're using more trauma-informed techniques and practices, understanding more what is going on and, and the impact of, you know, you know, that first trauma, the secondary trauma, generational trauma, especially, you know, working now with, um, the, the Mohawk tribe that we've been working with up north and understanding all the stuff they've gone through. And, you know, I, I think it's still a process that we're learning more and more from. I think the main thing, I guess, that really hit all of us pretty hard was the first time we met Bessel. So we met Bessel van der Kolk. It might have been, was it the first time we met him, guys? Was that was that Omega, that, that first time, right? When we spoke right before him? Was that the first time? Yeah, yeah it was the first yeah. time. Yeah, I thought so, right? So it was in the... uh in the green room, we meet him before we go on, we go on, we do our thing. He goes on after us. And before he talks, he says something along the lines of like, Hey, you know, like all of y'all can keep talking about this and that and what's going on. He's like, but those guys, and he was talking about, those guys are actually doing what we most. And he was saying how love is one of the, the biggest factors of making impact and trauma. And it was so cool and affirming for us to see, you know, like, wow, we kind of knew we were doing the right thing a little something, but for Bessel to say it too was like, okay, that's pretty dope right there. And then, uh, and I think that with us, it's just constantly studying more and learning more of ways that we can help because trauma is so impactful, not only in the people we work with, but in ourselves. You know, I, I remember the first time that I looked at, at an ACEs test, I was thinking, I'm going to take this test and I'm going to get a low number. You know, I think Ali Ottman and I all did. Like, this is, we weren't impacted. I mean, my, my childhood was okay. And then you take it and it's like, goodness gracious, my childhood was kind of messed up. <laughs> and now as I get older, even I see so many things that I do and so many things or so many ways that I act or, or things that I say where I'm like, man, that was because when I was younger, this happened to me and I'm still doing this, you know? So I'm still working through all this childhood trauma that I had gone through and I'm just realizing it now. So I think that in general, it's, it's been an, an evolutionary process of, of, of us growing personally and the way we end up, you know, delivering the practices to, to the participants. And, and, and I know, uh, just to add on to what Andy was saying, I know that, uh, you know, the populations in Baltimore uh, that we work with are dealing with, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, undiagnosed trauma, uh, you know, whether it's personal, whether it's secondary, whether it's intergenerational. And um, and I think that's why we have the approach that we do in um, with the Holistic Life Foundation on the way that we deliver, um, you know, yoga and mindfulness to them. You know, there are a lot of people, you know, quote unquote, teaching trauma-informed, you know, yoga and mindfulness, but, you know, sometimes they do, you know, more harm than good. And, mm -hmm. you know, they, you know, may lead a meditation with kids where, you know, they have nothing but open space. But, you know, if you're, you know, trauma-informed, you'll understand that, you know, leaving that open space in meditation and in specific breathing practices can allow for that trauma to pop up. You know, so, you know, the way that we kind of teach, uh, it's, you know, we have a skeleton of, you know, um, how we teach. It may look a little different, uh, whether it's, you know, elementary, middle or high school kids and the frequency of the different practices. But, you know, we start off with, you know, physical practices. You know, a lot of people that have been through trauma, their body is not a safe space. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's why we do the uh, physical practices, uh, you know, the asanas. 
uh, postures and stuff like that to kind of release that trauma that is stored in the body. You know, like Bessel, Andy was talking about Bessel, you know, his uh, book is The Body Keeps a Score. Like trauma does get stored in the body. And, you know, to uh, make that a safe space, that is why, you know, these physical practices are very important. Next, uh, we move into the breathing. You know, once the body is a safe space, you know, it does, you know, allow you to, you know, not only get rid of that, uh, you know, trauma that gets stored in the body, but it gets rid of that restless energy, which can allow you to sit down and actually breathe. And when you do breathe, it kind of stills the mind and is also healing to, you know, uh, you know, neurologically, you know, what has uh, impacted uh, your brain because you have dealt with, you know, a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are certain breathing practices that uh, can activate that vagus nerve, that threat perception, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because in like inner cities and, you know, a lot uh, a lot of other places besides inner cities, but, you know, they perceive everyone and everything as threats for the simple fact that, you know, that vagus nerve is not firing properly. So, you know, we speak, we teach certain breathing practices that can activate that vagus nerve and also, uh, you know, still the mind. And then after that, you know, we get into, you know, meditation because, you know, that their mind is still and, you know, we can kind of uh, introduce them to that peace within. And, you know, like I said at the beginning, you know, it's not empty space in our meditations, it's guided meditations. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, just because, you know, if you, once again, if you do leave that open space, that's when that trauma can arise. But it's kind of like, you know, you being someone's designated driver, like, you know, you are driving them to a a specific destination instead of letting them just run wild um, with that empty space. And, you know, we've seen that, uh, you know, in doing that, you know, that, you know, uh, we are able to help these people you know, heal themselves and, you know, once again, uh, activate that vagus nerve and, um, you know, tap into that inner peace. And, you know, like I said, it instead of doing more harm than good, it helps these people heal. Yeah, that's fantastic. And makes me think also of the, um, the final section of the book, which is about bringing your light into the world. And, and uh, you know, through the years that I've known you, I've heard you tell your story many times to different audiences. And one part of that story that stands out is the period when you returned to Baltimore in the nineties after college to discover that the crack epidemic had ravaged your community. And instead of responding to that with the despondence or that would be natural or, or just moving somewhere else, you asked this one very important question, which is what are we going to do about it? And this feels like the energy of the book's final portion. So what are we going to do with our light once we're in cover and nurture it? So I think once people uncover their light, I think life gets a lot harder. Um, Mm -hmm. Living in the darkness is like, I feel like this is a conversation Atman, Andy and I have had a lot, like, you know, like kind of living in a way where you're not, when you're just living on, when you're just living physically Mm -hmm. um, is, and just on this plane, like it's a lot easier. Cause I mean, there's no, like I can be mad at someone and it's fine. Um, I can get over on someone because it benefits me and that's fine. Um, I don't have to wake up early enough to meditate in the morning. I can sleep in. Um, you know what I mean? Like I don't, there's all these things I don't have to do. Like I can just live, like I can just enjoy life and gratify my senses and be totally okay with it. But I think once you tap into, um, tap into that, that light within you, um, you know, like there's that, there's that 
maybe I shouldn't do this. Like, you know what I mean? Like it starts to change your motivation behind what you're doing. Like you're like, you know, you're a human, you're gonna, you're gonna gratify your senses. Like that's gonna happen. But there's that, there's that, there's that voice in the back of your head. Like, Hey, you know, maybe we should, we should try this. And like, maybe we shouldn't stay out till the bars close at two in the morning in Baltimore. It's like, maybe I shouldn't stay out till two drinking. If I have to get up at five to meditate, um, so I can start my day right because I got an early day tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Or, you know what I mean? Maybe I shouldn't spend all my time in anger just because this person cut me off in traffic and they're not even thinking about me, but I'm going to spend two weeks cursing this person, sending negative energy to them. Like, so I, I think, I think, I think that's, that's a thing. Like life becomes more of a challenge because you're, you're, you're working at a different level. Mm-hmm. And then like, I think another thing with that is like, you know, um, like once you get in, once you get into your light, um, and and you get into a groove, uh, you'll notice that the universe is going to throw you curveballs mm-hmm. um, to see if you're like you know. I, I, I remember Uncle Will would always be like, you know, you guys know once you get it, once you get into this, and once you get into your light, the universe is like, yeah, right. Let me throw this at you and see what you do with it. You know what I mean? Like the universe is going to throw tests at you to see, like, okay, like you were you were you were you were in first grade. Now you're getting first grade first grade tests now. You end your tapped into your light now well let's see if you do with these second grade tests and so it's like constantly like challenging you to see if you can stay if if that's what your motivation is or if the work like in in yoga terms they call it prakriti uh prakriti is like that universal energy that's that's trying to like crudify your consciousness and keep you here like your the goal of yoga is to tap into your light and raise your consciousness but the goal of prakriti is the energy that, that wants to keep you here i remember uncle will used to always say like Prakriti isn't a bad thing. It's just Prakriti, like that energy loves you. It wants to keep you here. wants to keep you around. Doesn't want you to kind of mm-hmm. elevate your consciousness. Like, Hey, let's, let's hang here. I got some cool stuff here. So, um, I think you, it, it just becomes a thing where you, where you're, where it's a constant, um, it's a constant game. Like you can't look at it like something that's a, a struggle or a fight. Like it's more like a, um, it, it's more like, it's more like a game. You got to have fun with it. Like you can't, be all stoic and um, dread the fact that you have some knowledge. Like mm. um, I feel like having gratitude for the fact that you have knowledge, sharing it with other people, but um, also knowing that, you know, it, it becomes, it becomes a little more interesting. It becomes a little more fun. Like, but you, but the th- I think the beautiful thing about it is all these challenges come, but like Asma was talking, I mean, was talking about earlier, my son Asma said, like, you do have things to help you do have cheat codes. So like you have mantras to use, you have mudras to use when things get, do get, difficult but it's just you got to be a little creative you can't get stuck i know I've, I've had points in my life where i've got very dogmatic about my practice and i want it to look a certain way if it doesn't look a certain way then i feel like i'm off and i start to like question my my own dedication to it but you know like your practice has got to be you know bruce lee says you got to be like water with your practice like you got to be able to shift with what the universe throws at you and that, i think mm-hmm. that's why will spent so much time helping us build up our toolboxes so that as things shifted we would be able to shift with them and, and use a practice in a different way. Um, I would love to be able to get up at four in the morning and like I used to and mm-hmm. do Priyas and do some Kundalini yoga, spend like 45 minutes doing pranayama and then do a nice long meditation. That's not really realistic with like two kids and a bunch of work to do, but mm-hmm. you know, like I, but I can practice during my waking hours. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about meditation is that, um, meditation like helps you do life better like it's 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 like a, it's about meditating but it's also about i mean for for me my meditation practice is what fortifies me in the light 
uh, throughout the day. And I'm and I'm not going to sit here and tell any of the listeners that, yeah, I'm in the light all the time. Hell no. Like, you know what I mean? Like there are some distractions out there that pull you out. And then you're like, at some point you realize like, oh, wow, I've been kind of on the outside for a long time. Let me uh, recenter myself. And, you know, I meditate every day, at least once a day. Like I'll get a nice long meditation at least once a day. And that's just giving me a base. But it's just still like constantly being drawn out by like the world has beautiful things to offer. And you know what I mean? Like they're like, I love carbs. You know what I mean? Carbs aren't the best thing for me, but I, you know what I mean? It's just about keeping it all in moderation. Like, so I think it's, um, I think there's all these things that are going on, but I think it just gives you a pr- different perspective to view the world from. And uh, and just one last thing, I think our teacher used to always tell us and something I, I, I've always, I live by is um, he would always say, start and end your day in the light. Um, he would say, start your day in the light because it's easier to work from the inside out than the outside in. And he would say, end your day in the light so you can burn off all that stuff and you can have a more peaceful, um, natural experience when you're dreaming and be learning instead of like dealing with your struggles during the, throughout the day. Well, you've been building some new offerings as well these, these last few years. And uh, would you like to share a little bit about the Involution Group and what else is on the horizon for your, your efforts? Like Ali said earlier, uh, you know, our teacher you know, always wanted us to, you know, uh, dive deeper in uh, to our practices and share uh, the actual practices that helped us Mm -hmm. uh, in our journey, in our path. And, you know, like uh, Ali said, you know, we were kind of limited in what we could teach uh, Mm -hmm. through the Holistic Life Foundation. Um, So we've created the Involution Group where we are teaching, um, you know, uh, a lot of practices that have impacted our lives uh, and, you know, uh, enhanced our human experience. And, you know, it's uh, from us teaching about, you know, how to tap into your uh, subtle energy centers, your chakras or different mudras or uh, which are hand gestures that are closing the circuits of energy that flow throughout your body. Or, uh, you know, the mantras that we were talking about earlier that our formulas to help you achieve whatever you want want to do in life. Um, and then, you know, we also have uh, created a course called uh, the Spiritual Strategic Plan, uh, you know, where, you know, we um, kind of um, break down eight different pillars or aspects of your life and uh, different um, ways to kind of enhance those parts of your life, mm-hmm. whether, you know, it's, you know, holistic health or, you know, finding, uh, tapping into your true self. And, uh, you know, it goes on from there. But, you know, different techniques that we've learned, uh, tapping into your creative self, uh, you know, just different techniques that we've learned to help us uh, enhance those different aspects of ourselves. So once again, we can enhance our human experience and be the best version of ourselves. So, you know, it's uh, something that has is really exciting to us uh, just because, you know, once again, it these practices have you know, helped us uh, bliss out and 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 not just uh, survive, but thrive in one of the most dangerous communities in the world. And, you know, once again, you know, it's we'd be much remiss if we didn't share these practices with the world. And, you know, luckily through the evolution, we have a platform to be able to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just think one, one thing I really love about that spiritual strategic plan, spiritual strategic plan that Atman was talking about um, is that, um, is like the assessment part of it. You know what I mean? Like when you're doing a, a plan for your business, uh-huh. like you do an initially, like you do a baseline assessment of where you're at 
Um, and I, I, I like the fact that when you started, there's like an assessment where you're seeing how connected you are to those eight pillars that Ottman's talking about, whether it was holistic health, uh, creativity, learning, like all these different things. And, uh, the, and you have a tool, but you don't only just get, you don't just do a self-assessment. Like you find people around you to do an assessment also, because, uh, you know, people around you see your, your, your blind spots um, a lot more clearly than you can sometimes. And then like you work, you learn all these practices, you figure out something and then like you come up with your own unique plan to work through. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like, like my plan wouldn't look the same as yours or Ottman's or Andy's. Um, it'll look totally unique to me. And then I love that the fact that it's like the, the strategic plan that we put together for uh, the Holistic Life Foundation, like it's a living document. Like it's not something that you're going to just do and be like, okay, I'll just do this for the rest of my life. It's like, you know, every few months you, you reassess yourself, you see where you are. You might need to change your practice because of some situations or relationships or stressors or whatever have changed in your life. So you need to adjust the plan. So I love the fact that like there's a tool to help you figure out where you need to put a little more energy and effort uh, to, to be your best self. It's fabulous. Change is always worth noting. <laughs> uh, it's also worth mentioning before we go that uh, we are all teaching together virtually in December through the Garrison Institute in Garrison, New York. The dates are December 9th through the 10th, 2022. And the retreat is one we've been doing annually for many years. Um, for years, of course, physically present and, and now virtually. Uh, it's centered around the theme of people who care for people. So it's for anyone who's in a caregiving role, whether professionally or in your personal life, like being a parent or taking care of a family member. And I've seen it's actually, it's so much more expansive a concept than I first understood. You know, people, people would call and say, well, I'm a manager. I'm making all these decisions for other people. And I count, you know, like, and, uh, you know, more recently people also calling and saying, well, I always take, it seems that kind of role in my uh, relationships. I'm the giver. I'm the one who takes care of others. I feel a real lack of, allowing people to take care of me and you know, going back to something that Ali was saying a while ago about uh, caring about oneself. And so uh, there's so many dimensions to it and I love doing it. I love doing it with you all. Uh, so, and I appreciate the fact for one that it's virtual because I think it does open up the possibility of, of especially for people who are caring for other people who really would not be able to come because they couldn't arrange a substitute or, or something like that, you know, it really opens it up in a different way. So before we finish, I'd like to invite one of you to lead us in a guided practice of some kind to bring our conversation to a close. All right. So um, I'm going to lead us through a practice. Um, We've been talking, I feel like we've talked about the light a lot um, throughout this conversation with Sharon. And uh, sometimes that can be something abstract for people, uh, but it's your tr- it's your true self, um, and it's what we all really are. Like our bodies are just like the, our physical, or like our reference to the world. But that light is of the universe is what we re- what we really are. Uh, so we're going to do a practice of um, tapping into that light. Um, so so we're just going to um, everybody can go ahead and you can get yourself into a comfortable you can get yourself into a comfortable meditative position uh, with your back, neck, and head aligned. Uh, you can rest your palms on your lap, rest your hands on your lap, uh, palms up if that's comfortable for you, and uh, welcome you to close your eyes. 
And we're going to start by taking a couple deep breaths uh, in and out through our nose, all the way down to our belly, a couple deep centering breaths. Let's inhale nice and deeply, filling our belly and our lungs. Exhale, feel our lungs fall, push our belly in. Inhale deeply, filling your belly and your lungs. Exhale for your lungs fall, push your belly in, push all that air out. One last deep breath, inhale, filling your belly and your lungs. And exhale that breath all the way out. Now continue breathing on your own at a nice relaxed pace. So we don't have to put any effort into whatsoever. Just let your body naturally breathe. The first stage in yogic meditation is a stage called pratyahara, which means withdrawal of the senses. So you're pulling your senses from the outside world, sense gratification, distractions, inward towards the light of your true self. We're going to start with our sense of sight. And we're going to use our imagination or our mind's eye. We're going to see a bright white light shining in the center of our chest at heart level. As bright as you can possibly imagine it. You feel yourself looking down with your physical eyes, relax them. You're not going to see it with those eyes. You're going to see it with your mind's eye or your imagination. Just see that light shining there. Lose focus of it, just bring it back. Just keep bringing it back. Eventually, it'll just shine there on its own. Next thing we're going to do is going to work on feeling the positive energy and blissful vibrations that that light gives off. Uh, anything your body's feeling right now, you can go ahead and acknowledge. Whether it's the connection to whatever you're sitting on, position your body's in, the temperature of the room you're in. Or any other physical sensation you're feeling, go ahead and acknowledge it. And start to pull your sense of feel inward towards that light, shining in the center of your chest and heart level. You might notice it starts to feel like a floating, or fluttering, or swirling feeling, and even a vibration. Whatever it is, once you connect to it, don't grab onto it too tightly. Just lightly connect to it. Let the vibration carry you deeper and deeper. Really focus on seeing and feeling that light. As you do, know it's the light of your true self. The light of the universe. Omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. Source of all universal love, power, and energy. Your true self. See it, feel its energy.
And the next thing we're going to do is we're going to draw in our sense of hearing. We're going to use the OM sound for that. In yoga, that's the universal vibration, the sound of vibration that everything gives off, it unifies us all. It's going to help take us deeper and deeper into that light. So we're going to say it out loud three times. We're going to pull it inward. And hear it, the vib- hear it and feel the vibration of it pulsating from that light. We're going to inhale nice and deeply. And exhale with a nice, long, audible ohm. Ohm. Inhale again deeply. And exhale with another long, audible ohm. Oh. Inhale one more time, nice and deeply. And exhale with another long, audible ohm. that ohm inward hear it feel the vibration of it pulsating from that light all of your awareness is going to be on seeing feeling and hearing that light see the light shine feel the energy and the vibration and hear and feel that ohm know it's your true self of universal love and power and energy perfect in every single way just let your light shine through the meditation Let's very, very slowly and gradually start to draw our awareness back out from that light, back to our physical body. Stop by very, very lightly and gently wiggling your fingers and toes. Roll your wrist and roll your ankles a little bit. Go ahead and move your head a little bit from side to side. 
And then whenever you're ready, go ahead and slowly, slowly open up your eyes. Well, thank you so much for the beautiful meditation and all of you for joining me today. It's great to be with you again. It's always a pleasure, Sharon. We appreciate it. Yeah, we love you so much, Sharon. Thank you so much. We love you all. The next generation, too. To learn more about Ali Upman and Andy's work, visit www.hlfinc.org. It's hlfinc.org. And please get a copy of their new book, Let Your Light Shine, available October 18th, 2022, in a hardcover ebook and audiobook formats. A big thanks to all of our listeners out there. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey, folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.